0: Just this last week, I received an email, and the email was from somebody I've not spoken to for a couple of years. It was somebody that when we started uh, here at Trinity, we began to speak to about possibly using, thank you, love, possibly using a space uh, to meet in. And so we began a conversation with this person, but uh, we didn't end up using the space, and so we haven't really spoken to them since, but I got an email from them this week, and the email was... uh, was really all about whether or not I'd be willing to have a conversation with them. And the email was entitled this. How to be a whole person. How to be a whole person. This person had got in touch with me because due to some and through some experiences in their life, in the last couple of years, they've become open to a conversation about purpose and meaning and life. What it really means to be somebody who is whole who has integrity, who's, who's as one, if you like. And they, this person had never sort of thought about uh, religion, as they put it, or certainly Christian spirituality having any part whatsoever in that kind of conversation. And yet, because of the experiences they'd had in the last couple of years, they've become open to that in a new way. This is a question... This is one of the key questions that our culture is asking at the moment. Any of you come across the sort of the wellness agenda? Right? It's it's right out there in our faces, this desire, this cultural desire to get well, to be whole, to have lives of meaning and purpose. And yet we don't know, I would say, as a culture, we're, we're less certain. We're certain that's, that's important, but we're less certain on what the places might be where we might experience holiness and to learn about how to be whole. One particular place that we've looked to as a culture, and you see this by the proliferation of books in your local Waterstones, if you ever go to Waterstones anymore, if you make it past Amazon, and you get out into an actual shop, if you go to Waterstones, you'll see that there is wall after wall of self-help books, right? Whole areas of the shop are given over to self-help. So one of our solutions as a culture to the problem of meaning and purpose, how we can become whole people is to help ourselves. Now, the church throughout the ages has always been quite skeptical about the concept of self-help because, you see, the church and, indeed, the Bible say, no, the self, the broken and sinful self is the problem, And what you need is rescue from the self. You need somebody to invade your situation, your system, your body, your mind, your heart, your very life from the outside. You need, to use a biblical word, salvation. The church is skeptical about self-help. But we've said in the last few weeks that we do have something to say on this issue. And we have somebody who lived the most whole life imaginable. And he has become for us not just our model, not just our example, but he has become our salvation. The man Jesus. And we've said that we do well as the church. In fact, we recover and discover our true essence, our mission and our purpose, not just by taking seriously his life and his death, his resurrection, sorry, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, but taking equally seriously his life. The way that he actually lived, as Brian put it last week, Jesus has the best information available on what it means to be human. And it's as we take seriously his life, how he lived, what he did, the way that he operated, that we too can understand and experience the life that he has. And last week, Brian said that that message of life and wholeness is always particularly attractive to the broken and the hurting. To those people who have not, to those people who have come, as Dallas Willard said, to the end of their rope. It's those people uniquely who are able to connect with this life, this message of the kingdom of God, of life, of wholeness. Or as Brian put it, the one entry point to the kingdom is to recognize that you don't have the resources. And this. This point, this broken hearted point, is exactly the point the disciples are in when Jesus appears to them in Luke after the resurrection. And they've already met him a few different times. We heard that read to us. They've already met him a few different times. But they're really questioning, surely, they're questioning what's next. How do I now, in the light of the resurrection, live a life of meaning and purpose? What is next for me? What is the pathway to life and wholeness? And they are broken. Every single one of them, pretty much, fail to live up to their own expectations of themselves. Let me tell you, that's a very painful place to be. You have an expectation for your own life. You, you think that if a certain situation comes, you'll respond in a certain way, and the situation happens and you fail. Your own standards. That's where Peter particularly is at in this moment. And so they feel uniquely broken. And Jesus interacts with them. He shows up to them. And he shows them that there's hope. He says this. Then, verse 45. It says, then he opened their minds. I just love that. It likes, that line, it's like it belongs in Star Wars or something. But here we have it in the Bible. He opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Just Just think about for a minute, what would that have been like? Jesus, like, beginning to teach you the Bible. You don't have to put up with this stuff that I trot out every week. No, Jesus opening their minds, it says, so they could understand the scriptures they'd read them before, but they'd never clicked. They'd never made sense to them. But Jesus here opens their minds. He gives them the best crash course in scripture imaginable. He told them this is what's written the Messiah will suffer, rise from the dead and on the third day, on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in His name to all nations. Beginning in Jerusalem, you are witnesses. In other words, Jesus reviews his past ministry, and he previews their future ministry. And in doing that he gives them hope and purpose, and he begins to offer them wholeness. The line in the first page of the book, The Kite Run, it says this, there's a way to be good again. It's like though, just what Jesus is saying to these disciples, there's a way to be good again, fellas. There's a way to find wholeness. And then, as they're expecting, or as they're not expecting, he disappears. They're expecting some kind of moment, aren't they? Surely. And yet Jesus says, well, I'm actually going to go now. The most confusing move by any leader ever. And they do what they're told to do. Jesus says, stay in the city, and they do what they're told to do. They wait. They wait, and they wait. And I think once they've done waiting, they think, oh, we probably should do something. Why don't we pray? And they begin to pray. And then, and flip over to Acts 2, if you're not already there. Pentecost. This is what we read. Verse 1 of Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came... The 50th day after the Passover. And this was just a, an agri- a regular run-of-the-mill agricultural festival for the Jewish people. And what they would do, you see, is that they would bring the first fruits of their harvest as worship. They'd say, look, God, we're going to give you the first of what we have. And it's an important biblical principle. We'll give you the first of what we have because we trust you for the rest. And we want to be thankful with the first, the best that we have. That was what they did every single year. And the farmers brought the first of the the wheat sheaf or whatever it was that they were harvesting and they offered it to God. But this Pentecost is a little bit different. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. See, what happens at this particular Pentecost is the 180-degree uh, translation. Rather than God's people giving a gift which promises a future harvest, instead, God himself at this Pentecost gives his own people a gift, which promises not a harvest to himself, although he'll get that, but a harvest to them. He gives them a gift. And because of that gift, there is a mighty harvest. In fact, we read later on in the text, 3,000 people come to salvation that very day. God, never willing to be outgiven by his people, pours out the gift, the gift of his own self, the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what happened? Here's what happened. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. It begins with a violent wind. Begins with a violent wind. Now picture it. You're in a prayer meeting. Okay, you're sitting down, there's three of you, three of you sitting there, there's not, there's more in this case, but you're, you're in a prayer, 120 people, let's just use their example, you're gathered around, you've been praying, you've been praying faithfully, and all of a sudden you just begin to hear a noise, imagine it now, it's like, is the wind getting up outside, What's happening? And you just begin to see the field, the building. You do, the building's responding to the wind. You're looking round. What's going on? What's Peter eating? <laughs> but it just becomes more and more strong. It's just intensified. You're all looking at each other, staring. What's going on? And beginning to think something's happening. This is a moment, a transition moment for God's people. The Greek word for wind here is the word from which we get The word, or we now have the word echo, an echo. You're beginning to hear a resounding sound. It means a loud or confused noise. It's as if God's trying to get this people's attention, to stir things up. Doesn't the wind do that? To shake things about a bit. If you like, to blow the cobwebs out, to blow out the cobwebs of apathy. To blow out the cobwebs of unbelief and uncertainty, of confusion. See, the disciples have seen Jesus raised from the dead, but have they really internally been changed yet? Have they been equipped? Have they been empowered? Are they ready to go? Decisively, the New Testament gives the answer, no. It isn't until this moment that the cobwebs of failure, of brokenheartedness, are blown out of them. See, their interior landscape needs to be completely changed. And it takes a divine wind to do that. No self-help book will get the disciples out of the hole they've dug themselves. They need God. And you and I need God. The Spirit of God comes to shake things up. This is the way the Holy Spirit operates in the world, then and today. He, he, you know, the Holy Spirit often comes to discomfort. Oh, it's like he, he starts to move and it's like, ah, oh, that, oh, that doesn't feel quite so comfortable as I'd expected. Don't get me wrong, the Holy Spirit is the comforter. He's the one who comes alongside to meet us at our lowest point and give us grace and peace. Yes, of course. But there are times where there's a journey to get to that point. And the journey begins with discomfort, a sense that not all is right within. A sense of, I'm not as I wish I were. We experience, we feel even the gap between the person we are and the person we wish we were. And the Holy Spirit works in his own way. He always brings glory to Jesus, but we make a mistake with the Holy Spirit if we think he's tame. I think often our expectations of what he would want to do in us have been accommodated. They've been shrunk to our experience. You know, we haven't seen a whole lot of people's lives being flipped around. We haven't seen the, the level of transformation in our own lives or in others' lives that we read in the scriptures. We haven't seen healing like we see in the Bible. If we haven't seen these things, we, we can begin to think that the Holy Spirit just sits in this little box. Or maybe he sits in this little book and he won't break out of it. I certainly feel that temptation in my own life. You see, I've begun to experience God for the first time as a sort of 10 or 11 year old. It was around the early 1990s. In a time known as the Toronto Blessing, and I've got to say, I've said this to you before, all sorts of weird things were going on. I knew no different. I just, that was what it was, and I also trusted the people who were leading in that space, in that environment. But God was on the move. I saw that, and yet, if I'm honest, between then and now, I haven't seen the The visible, the manifest power of the Holy Spirit operating in the way that I've hoped. Do you know, honestly, if I'd never have experienced that as a 10 or 11-year-old, I wouldn't know what I was missing. But it ruined me. Honestly, it ruined me for the Christian life as the regular, you know. It ruined me for the regular. It ruined me for church, just the regular church. I love, we say this every week, we love you. Like We're not even trying. We really do. We think you are the most outstanding group of people. We love this church. If if what we've done thus far is what we're going to do for the next 40 years, we are so happy with that on one level. But there's another part of me which says, I know there's more for you. There's surely a lot more for you than I can give you. There's more for me as well. I believe that. I believe God's given me a hunger to see renewal to see revival because he plans to fulfill his promise to me and to you and to us and to our city and all the great communities of faith that are in this city. We need it, don't we? We need him to blow out the cobwebs of apathy. We need him to right size our expectations. It's got to be him. We need the wind of God But he might discomfort, he might upset us. You know, the Holy Spirit, as wind, comes to bring life. The word for wind, not this word, but the word elsewhere, used in the New Testament, pneuma, means breath or wind, It also means spirit. The same wordplay happens in the Old Testament as well as the new. The word ruach, wind or breath, also means spirit in the Old Testament. You see, God's wind, his breath, comes to bring personal renewal. You know, at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 2-7, I think we have it on the screen. This is what we read. The Lord God formed a man, Adam, from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath, the ruach of life. And the man became a living being. Here we have an inanimate man. And the Holy Spirit comes to animate him By blowing his wind into his being. And in so doing, this man becomes a living being. A going concern. A man alive. Personal renewal happens through the Holy Spirit. We see basically the same thing happening in uh, Ezekiel chapter 37. You know that famous picture, if you're you're new to church, you maybe haven't read this yet, but many of us who've been around a little while, we know this is a picture of these dead bones. In the valley, these dead bones, and Ezekiel is taken by the Lord to see these dead bones. This is a picture, folks, not of individual renewal, but corporate renewal. This is a nation being raised up, not just a man. And this is Israel, who have been by this point uh, exiled and are awaiting God's delivery. And this is what we read. He said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come, breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Do you believe this is the word of the Lord today? That God has in mind not just a personal renewal for you and I, although he does have that in his mind. It's always in his mind. But also renewal (laughs) for our communities, for us as a body. For every church community in our city, for our city, for our nation, where have the leaders gone? Where are the leaders in the nation? You know what we call leadership today? We call leadership people standing the other one side or another side of of the uh, speaker's box in parliament and blaming one another. That's not leadership. We need the Holy Spirit of God to raise up leaders for our generation who can lead us. It's personal renewal. It's corporate renewal. It's sometimes uncomfortable. And it's sometimes like wind. And it's sometimes like fire. This is what we read. Verse 3. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Fire. I talk about uncomfortable. Wind was bad enough. And here we have fire resting on their heads. This is some kind of divine coronation moment, isn't it? There is here an anointing given by the Holy Spirit for all that God has for these people. Here he's replacing their broken identity with a royal identity. Placing a crown on their heads This is what the Holy Spirit does. But he comes like fire. This is a fulfillment of a prophecy that John the Baptist shares with the people in Luke 3. I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to untie. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Fuego, baby! Yes, fire! The fire of God. The fire of God. This is the second Outward manifest. Fuego is Spanish, folks, if you didn't get it. <laughs> I'm not bilingual, but I do know one or two words. Fire is about empowerment, fire is about purging. Fire is a force that cleanses and purges, that cleans us. This fire, I believe, is an image of holiness. It's an image of God coming into his church to purify them from the inside out. To make them ready to carry the greatest gift he has to offer, his own presence. God needs to clean the vessel before he can fill the vessel. It's significant, isn't it? How often we see through history the coming of the Holy Spirit in greater power, be accompanied by a greater desire for holiness. Here's one such story from a book charting the revival in the Hebrides, 1949. It says this, in 1949, the spirit of grace and supplication, means prayer, fell upon a congregation in the village of Arnold and the Isle of Lewis in the Scottish Hebrides. They prayed for a revival. One night they crowded into the home of the blacksmith, a smith named Smith. Love it. But the spiritual atmosphere was dry. A sense of deadness prevailed as one after the other tried to break through in prayer. Duncan Campbell, a visiting evangelist, called on Mr. Smith to pray. The prayer was short and sharp. He was a Scot, after all. Oh God, you made a promise to pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. And Lord, it's not happening. He paused and then continued in a rising voice. Lord, I do not know how Mr. Campbell or these other men stand with you. But if I know my own heart, I know that I am thirsty. You've promised to pour water on him who is thirsty. If you don't do it, how can I ever believe you again? Your honor is at stake. You are a covenant-keeping God. Fulfill your covenant engagement. At that instant, the granite house shook like a leaf. And a power was unleashed that swept the entire parish. Campbell said, I could only stand in silence as wave after wave of divine power swept through the house. And in a matter of minutes, following this heaven-sent visitation, men and women were on their faces in distress of soul. He stepped outside and discovered that the whole village was astir. Though it was 11 o'clock and at night, people with lanterns and flashlights were making their way along the roads and across the fields towards the meeting place as if summoned by a silent bell. Next day, the looms were silent and work stopped. Everywhere the people gathered to discuss this strange invasion from heaven and the awareness of God's presence that now pervaded the community. Spontaneous prayer meetings took place in homes and on the streets. You met God on the meadow and the moorland, said the parish minister. You met him in the homes of people. God seemed to be everywhere. That's just the beginning, folks. But do you see this connection between desperation and a sense, an inner sense that all is not right with us? You know, that's not the devil. That's the Spirit of God. Increasing our awareness of our need for God. That's one of the first signs of the activity of the Holy Spirit in anyone's life. And then as we read on in this story, we read this. Uh, This is all written by Duncan Campbell, who was there at the time, an evangelist. Here is a scene witnessed during the first days of the movement. A crowded church, the service is over. The congregation, reluctant to disperse, stand outside the church in silence that is tense. Suddenly a cry is heard within. A young man, burdened for the souls of his fellow men, is pouring out his soul in intercession. He prays until he falls into a trance and lies prostrate on the floor of the church. But heaven had heard, and the congregation moved by a power they could not resist, came back into the church, and a wave of conviction of sin swept over the gathering, moving strong men to cry to God for mercy. This service continued until the small hours of the morning, but so great was the distress and so deep the hunger which gripped men and women that they refused to go home and already were assembling in another part of the parish. Imagine a church prayer meeting you can't disband. An interesting and amazing feature of this early morning visitation was the number of people who made their way to the church, moved by a power they'd not experienced before. Others were deeply convicted of their sin and crying for mercy in their homes before ever coming near to the church. Don't you want this? I do. Brings to mind Wesley's Holy Club. You heard of the Wesley's, John, Charles, together with George Whitfield, when they went to university at Oxford, as if the study wasn't enough, they decided to to found a club that was uh, called the Holy Club, demeaning word by other people. And they would meet four nights a week and their initial intention was to read the classics together. And on Sunday, they'd read some kind of spiritual book. Anyway, God got a hold of these young men who had a dream for something more than their own lives. And quickly, the, the fire of God fell on them. These men, involving, uh, among others, were involved in the great evangelical awakening. This club started in, Nover- uh, in November 1729, but within years, these men and many women around them were being used. They were seeing great conversions, transformation in the fabric of society. You know, certain historians suggest that the reason the French Revolution didn't carry over to, the, to England as well was because of the work and activity of the Holy Spirit through these people. This was a blessing that went beyond the church and it touched every part of society. And it was centered around holiness. A desire to be made into a person who reflected back to God his glory. That's what holiness is. It's, it's, it's becoming a mirror to him. It's not actually even about us. It's just becoming somebody who's been cleansed by him. So that when people look at us, all they see is him. All they see is the light of him reflected onto them. It's not about us, it's about Him. And the holy people are better able to reflect His beautiful light and glory. In your light we see light, but the dream that God has for His people is that in His light they would see His light. You know, we cannot be filled with the Holy Spirit if we're not serious about following the will of the Father. And one of the things I think the Holy Spirit wants to do in us as the church today is to draw us to repentance, to call us to a place where we're willing to openly admit, we're willing to engage with our brokenness, we're willing to admit the addictions and the habits that we know displease him, and we're actually willing to do business with him and do whatever it takes to be cleansed. Whatever it takes to be cleansed. We look at our habits, we look at our, maybe our, inward lack of generosity, maybe our bitterness or our unforgiveness, our pride, our our ongoing habitual sexual sin, our dalliances with pornography. And we say, no, Lord, I want to be free. I don't know how to be free, but I want to be free. I can't do it on my own. But would you set a fire in me that would purify me from the inside out? The wind, the fire, and thirdly, the filling. It says all of them were filled. All of them were filled. With the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. The filling, and here's all all I want you to grasp from this third thing. They were filled, and they knew it. They knew it. They knew it. They knew knew something had changed. They knew it. They didn't know what. Maybe they didn't know exactly. At this point, they didn't have the theology. Paul hadn't showed up and sort of explained some things to them. But they just knew something had changed. They were never the same after this moment. The filling of God, the Holy Spirit was given to change them from the inside out. And the effect and the impact was immediate. They run out. Words run out of their bodies in praise and proclamation. 3,000 people in that moment come to faith. And this is a fulfillment of the promise Jesus gives them at the end of Luke's gospel. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. When, Jesus, in just a few weeks, when I've given you the gift my Father has promised. You know, there are things that we can't even dream of doing now. When the Holy Spirit touches us, they will become intuitive, instantaneous Praise and proclamation to the honor and the glory of God. The truth is that without the Holy Spirit coming in just this way, the news about Jesus would have died out within a generation. I believe that. What good would have the resurrection from the dead have been if nobody were courageous enough to proclaim it? The church, as a friend of mine, Don Williams says is only ever a generation away from extinction. Who are the Peters? Who are the Wesleys? Who are the people who will say to Jesus, whatever it takes, cleanse me, send me, use me. I need you. I need more of you. Oh, how we need a new Pentecost today. Oh, how we need the fire of God to fall on us, the wind of the Holy Spirit to be given to us. Yes. Oh, how we need the Spirit of God to indwell us. How we need to become serious about God, serious, more serious about Him than anything else. Not, praise God to the detriment of our humor. We don't lose our humanity when we surrender to the Holy Spirit, we receive it. Remember, this is about wholeness. This is about joy. You don't have to be as serious as me. In fact, the Holy Spirit gets a hold of you. You will laugh and you will cry. You will dance. And you're like, whoa, he said dance. He said that word, that dirty word, dance. Yes, you will. You will dance. We will dance. (laughs) I'm taken back to that word. uh, The Smith, Smith, the blacksmith, (laughs) prayed at the beginning. God, I've been praying this this week. God, your honor is at stake. God's honor is at stake in our generation. You know, there are people out there, the majority of people think that the church has nothing to say. They think we're just a dead religion. And the fact that people think we're a religion at all is a major failing on our part. This is not religion. This is revelation. This is God becoming man. Sending out the gift of his Holy Spirit on all flesh. That all flesh would prophesy. That all flesh would see visions and dream dreams. God's honor is at stake. We can have all the strategies we can muster. And here's the thing. Hear me on this. We must. Because when the fire of God comes, there better be a vessel able to contain it. And if we have no vessels, the fire just dissipates. Strategies. Strategies birthed in God, matter. However, strategies without the spark will go nowhere. It's like having a boat without a sail. When the wind blows, nothing will be there to catch the wind. As Lloyd Ogilvie said, the greatest longing in the church today is the quest for something more than dull religion. People are in need of the intimacy, inspiration, and impelling power of the Holy Spirit. Answering that cry, is the key to church renewal and prophetic preaching and teaching. It is impossible to live the Christian life without the indwelling spirit. Courageous discipleship in the crisis of society cannot be accomplished without the guidance and enabling energy of supernatural power. The church today, like the disciples in the upper room, is waiting on the edge of a miracle. 120 frightened, impotent, self-centered, willful and discouraged men and women were transformed into new creatures. They were infused with supernatural power. Intellectually, emotionally, volitionally, and physically. We can do nothing without the Holy Spirit. But with him, God through us can do all things. I close with this. Because the question is, what do we do with this? What do we do with it? As I was being ordained, and as anybody is ordained in the Church of England, there's a moment where the bishop lays his hands upon you, having read out the charge, his command, the biblical mandate, to go and do the things that Jesus did, to speak the words he spoke and to follow him. And then he says this, You cannot bear the weight of this calling on your own. Earnestly pray for the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what I think we need to do today. Put it in Jesus' language to ask. To ask, to earnestly pray for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Would you stand with me? We're going to do that together.